0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Religion on the New Books Network. My name is Diana DeHanova, and I will be your host. Today I'm speaking with Adam Siegel, Researcher Services Librarian at UC Davis, and Dietra Cohen, Family Herbalist. We're going to be discussing their 2021 book, Ashkenazi Herbalism, Rediscovering the Herbal Traditions of Eastern European Jews. Adam and Trump, welcome to the program, and thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Diana. We're very excited to talk with you.
2: Yes, thank you. It's an honor to be on the program.
0: So let's start. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, backgrounds and how you came to be interested, both generally in herbalism and specifically this project?
1: Um, I for many years was a librarian, a reference librarian in public libraries and um, grew up uh, in um, Philadelphia, which is kind of what I like to think of as a bunch of little villages strung together in a a very forested area. And so I grew up around nature and I was always really interested in plants and um, the natural world. And um, after I retired from being a librarian, I decided to uh, pursue my studies in herbalism. And that's kind of uh, um, a roundabout way of saying how I became interested. But those are kind of the, uh, the areas that brought together um, my specific interest in um, describing uh, herbalism from um, a specific point of view.
2: Uh, and I was uh, um, trained uh, as basically an Eastern European linguist, and have done a lot of research on cultural contact in Central and Eastern Europe, particularly in uh, you know the former Soviet Union, the um, you know, uh, former Czechoslovakia, the former Yugoslavia, all the all the formers, <laughs> Poland, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, okay. interesting plans. Uh, so what, um, yeah. Sorry. Um, And also, I have, you know, in my librarian job, I've done a lot of research on plants in Eastern Europe, particularly uh, uh, grapes, grapes and wine, um, olives, and to a certain extent, tea, camellia sinensis.
0: Uh, So I wanted to kind of start with basic questions um, because I think herbal medicine is something I think everyone thinks they know what it is, (laughs) but a lot of people don't. So let's start with that. What is herbal medicine? um, And then what role has it traditionally played in Ashkenazi culture?
1: Um, Our connection cut out a little bit, but I think what you asked was, um, what is herbal medicine and how did it affect um, Ashkenazi? That's right. Okay. Okay. well, herbal medicine is something that um, has been around since time immemorial. And basically it's um, human interest in the natural world, specifically the plants around them um, and their abilities to heal and keep in balance uh, the the body's um, systems. Um, and in particular to Ashkenazim, um, They were and continue to be part of the natural world and um, cultures that uh, have been um, one of the cultures that have been uh, knowledgeable in this area um, from probably time immemorial. And we know that uh, from looking at the Hebrew Bible that many plants are mentioned there in the context of healing and health. So... um, I guess that kind of puts uh, Ashkenaz and, and Jews in general into that context.
0: Uh, now, you write that, you know, there's been relatively little research on this topic. You write in the afterward, uh, quote, this book is as much a piece uh, of detective work as it is a guide. Uh, so could you talk a bit about your experience in discovering the sources um, as you were working on this project?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, right. That's, you know, that's in some ways, you know, the, for us, certainly that was, the, that was the, 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 fun part. Um, you know, dietrich's uh, you know, the, the, this project was an outgrowth, outgrowth of her studies. And, um, you know, so what she was faced with when being asked in her uh, Western Europe, Western uh, herb, herbalist tradition training was to sort of look at her own ancestral, um, plant and healing knowledge. Um, you know, she couldn't find anything. There was very, there was nothing, you know, there was certainly no one place you could go to. You couldn't go to the library and say, show me all the books on Jewish herbalism because there weren't any, or show me anything about, you know, plant knowledge among Eastern European Jews or any, you know, uh, there, there, there wasn't anything. And so that set, you know, that basically was, was the, uh, impetus for it, for this, this, the, 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 this, this research journey. Um, I mean, I can skip ahead. I'll let her go back because <laughs> it's really, you know, uh, the struggle that she engaged with and how she sort of broke
1: through. Yeah, that's true. Um, when I first started um, studying herbalism more formally, uh, one of the things that you find when you study, especially with uh, uh, in, in, in a school, is that the teachers and most herbalists will... Um, want to know the traditions that your family uh, would have relied on. Um, And in my case, uh, they were wondering about our parents or our grandparents. And uh, most of the people in my class at that point had some sort of anecdote that they could tell. And when it came my turn to talk about it, um, I really could come up with not very much. I mean, my mother had, uh, given us tea with lemon and honey. Honey seemed to be something that uh, was a recurring remedy in our household. But other than that, um, I couldn't come up with anything. And that was my initial impetus, uh, for really wanting to find out more because my own grandparents had come here to the United States from Eastern Europe. And I knew that because they had grown up in, um, basically a shtetl, uh, that there had to be something that they had looked to um, medicinally because, I don't know, it just seemed like natural. And um, so when I started researching, because as a librarian, I haven't been a librarian for many years, I was like very curious to dig into the literature. And so I fully expected to find all kinds of information because um, there's so much that's written on the pale and life in the pale. But um, as soon as I started looking, um, I was shocked and amazed that there's really nothing in English or, um, as I found out later, um, when Adam uh, began to help me with the project, that um, what There is, is kind of like this diaspora of little tiny nuggets and sparks of information all over the place in very um, surprising and unexpected places in all kinds of languages. But you have to be willing and able to really dig through so much literature and also be able to read between the lines. And um, so that's kind of, I hope answering your question um, uh, there's a little more to that and um, I can talk about that if you'd like. Um, yeah, please, please go on. Um, well, uh, kind of early on in my research, I um, had found three things, three uh, books that have been published in the 20th century. Um, they weren't specifically as far as I knew on Jewish Herbalism in the pale, which is where both sides of my family come from, but they were from adjacent populations that I figured, well, you know, um, my family lived amongst these people. There must have been some sort of, you know, um, osmosis that happened at some point um, with this knowledge. And these Mm -hmm. three books, one of them was on um, Russian. Herbalism. The other was on Polish herbalism. And the third one was called Herbs Used in Ukrainian Folk Medicine. And so these were the books that I relied on throughout my studies because um, so much of the work that we were doing um, required us to um, talk about um, possible uh, ancestral knowledge. So um, this went on for about a year and I was really looking at these uh, books for their plant knowledge. And then... um, steps led to um me um, continuing to uh search for more uh specific details about uh possible Ashkenazi herbalism and I would find little tiny. Um, hints of it all over the place um, in really unexpected sources. One of these was uh, a bottle of bitters that was pictured in the Holocaust Memorial site. And when I looked closely at it, uh, I thought it was a milk bottle. But when I zoomed in to get a better picture of it, it turned out to be a bottle of bitters that was produced by a Jewish company in Posen, Poland. And um, it Uh, used herbs like gentian. And if any of your listeners are herbalists, they will know that um, gentian is one of the bitter herbs that um, is uh, used in things like uh, aperitifs that are taken before eating a meal that help um, the digestion process and the salivation process that helped break down food. So this was a clue that I found that was very exciting. And yet it, it wasn't enough for me because I wanted to know if this was one herb, there had to be more. And so uh, I found other uh, clues. Another was um, about a, um, a list of uh, women's practices in a town in Sonic, also in Poland uh, before the war, uh, that was listed in a book called... um, Uh, the shtetl book, which is kind of a classic from the 70s. So this list of women's professions included a herb vendor and a couple of other professions that were also significant. Um, One of them was a medic. Another one was an absprecherin. um, And another was a syrup maker and also bathhouse attendant. So later on, uh, I was to find that all of these professions contributed their knowledge to uh, Ashkenazi herbalism, um, in general, in the stettles. Uh, But at the time, I didn't know. And so I continued searching. And um, another big, big um, breakthrough for me came... From a book called "And Prairie Dogs Weren't Kosher," which um, is a funny title, but it is uh, the stories of these women who came from uh, the Pale Settlement. They were all Jewish and who pioneered the Upper Midwest in the United States in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And one of these stories comes from a woman grant uh, her granddaughter, who talked about her grandmother, who's from a town in Ukraine called Krasilev. And her grandmother was a midwife. She was also an herbalist. And she delivered her granddaughter in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And she also was able to go to the pharmacy in North Dakota without knowing English, being able to read it or speak it. And she could go into these pharmacies and um, pick out the herbs that she needed for um, healing in her family. And I'm assuming she could pick them out by sight, by smell, by taste, and she could take home the herbs and make the medicine, prepare the medicine that her family needed. And so when I found out that this woman was from Ukraine, I decided I needed to find out more about these people. Here was this Jewish woman from Kressel of Ukraine. And I went back to the book that I had earlier looked at only for plant knowledge and, um, This is a book, um, again, it's called Herbs Used in Ukrainian Folk Medicine. Um, I had often and always assumed that it had been talking about ethnic Ukrainians. And um, so I went back to this book because even though it doesn't speak about any population in specific, it does list the towns where the anonymous informants came from. and One of these towns was Krasilev. So I decided to go through the list in the back of the book, which is an alphabetical appendix of the towns where the informants came from. And if you look at this book, it's 114 pages. It's very short. It's part of a mimeographed series that came out in 1952. Um, It... uh, what can I say about it? Um, it? The data that was gathered for this um, document had been gathered between the wars. So, um, between World War I and World War II, the uh, Soviet government had undertaken all kinds of ethnobotanical studies because they had run out of medicines after the First World War and they were looking for inexpensive ways to heal their people. And so, one of these ethnobotanical expeditions had gone to Ukraine. And this book um, was taken from part of the data from those uh, field from those field works. And it was um, saved and preserved by this woman who had been on these expeditions. She was a Ukrainian woman. She had survived the war and she had made it to the United States in probably the late 40s, and by 1952 it published an excerpt from this data that she had literally brought to the United States in at least one suitcase. So this is the data that I had been looking at, and if you are looking at that book, it's really about the plant medicine and the way the informants uh, had told about their knowledge and how they had used the plants. And so when the book talks about each plant, it lists the towns. But when I was looking at them, the towns listed in that part of the book are very abbreviated and hard to um, uh, decipher. And so I had never paid much attention to them until I decided to look at this appendix. So as I started to go through the appendix alphabetically, what was coming up, um, as I did really informal searches on the internet was the first hit that I would get on about seventy seventy five 75% of the towns was Jewish gen. And if any of your listeners are familiar with Jewish gen, it's a website that deals with, um, genealogy of, uh, Ashkenazim and other, uh, groups of Jews, uh, from, um, Europe and Eastern Europe in particular. And so I had done a lot of genealogy with, um, uh, some of my cousins. And so I was very familiar with the site. And so every time the site would come up, I would think that's odd. And then other sites that would come up right underneath it were things like Shtetlfinder Finder and, um, Yad Vashem and a bunch of other sites that talked about uh, memorializing um, the towns that had been devastated in the Holocaust. So I was sitting in the living room and Adam, um, my husband and co-author, was sitting next to me. And uh, I turned to him and I said, do you think this is significant? And you can imagine (laughs) what he said. And so that was a (laughs) huge breakthrough for me. And I spent um, six months after that going through each one of these towns and really, really investigating the name of the town, what the population breakdown was, um, using things like uh, this source that was put together after the Holocaust called Where Once We Walked, um, uh, the uh and gazetteer from 1952 adam helped me with the uh russian census of 1926 and um i also put together a, a map where i um pinned all the towns where you can see exactly where they were because i had no idea where some of these places any of them were and then i um, also put together a handmade graph and an online um spreadsheet of each plant um, specifically where it was uh, uh, told about by the informants in in the surveys and many many patterns emerged from um, taking this data and um, really uh, contextualizing it Um, so that's kind of really the beginning of our um, research I was encouraged after doing all this, I did my final paper for my class, for my program um, on the data that I uh, found and um, kind of put together an anecdotal paper for um, my class. And then I was encouraged by one of our ethnobotanical teachers to have the, uh, the article published. Um, and I did that in the Journal of the Earth American Herbalists Guild. And then I realized that other people would be really interested in this. And so I decided to kind of um, take it around to different uh, publishers. And North Atlantic was very excited and supportive of our idea. And then really, that's when our super extensive research started. And I can let Adam finish with that if he'd like.
2: Oh, yeah, um, right. Because at that point, basically, Dietrich was able to use herbs used in Ukrainian folk medicine as sort of a skeleton key to confirm that, you know, these towns that before the war had Jewish populations of up to
1: 70, 80, yeah, 100 percent,
2: some of them, and some were lower. I mean, big towns, small towns, that you could sort of reconstruct, do a sort of forensic reconstruction of the, of the, Actual Materia Medica of Ashkenazi Herbalists, the Herbalist community. And at that point, you know, along the way, you know, Dietrich talked about, um, you know, women's trades in Sahnik in Poland. And you going through some of the English language historiography of um, Jewish history led us into uh, the Yiddish language, you know, h- historiography. So we spent a lot of time, not enough because we didn't have that much time, but we spent a lot of time looking at Yizkor books, memory books from, you know, um, the communities that were mostly compiled after the war by survivors. Um, we had to sort of look at the history of ethnographic research in Russia from the, like, the late 19th century up until... Up until the First World War with the Jewish ethnographic program, the Ansky Expeditions, um, YIVO's work in Poland in the 20s and 30s, um, basically having to map out an entire world of folk medicine in Jewish communities, um, you know, culminating you know, in, in, the, in the late 30s. And it was a lot of reading. It was a lot, of, a lot of, a lot of squinting at itty bitty, itty bitty footnotes in Cyrillic and, and Yiddish. And um, but we ended up with uh, being able to a tell this, you know, be able to tell a story of of you know Jewish medicine, both traditional and folk medicine, in the Pale from you know the seventeenth century up until the twentieth, and then. Dietra selected, and it was a sort of an intentional selection of 26 representative, not, it was, it's not the whole Materia Medica, but it's a nice representative collection of plants that are important, not, not just for, not just for the Ashkenazi Jewish community, but for also for, you know, in Eastern Europe in general.
0: I can certainly see uh, why you described it as a, as a text of work, uh, especially the early, uh, the early stages of it that you described, Dietra. Um, even more so than I think, uh, research usually is. Um, and i gosh, I wish we had more time to talk about this, um, Ukrainian woman in North Dakota, because that sounds
1: like a really fascinating story. Yeah, it really is. Um, the story in that book in the, in Prairie Dogs Weren't Kosher, it's wow. really a very <laughs> short anecdote, but it was, you know, amazing. And so many of the things that I found were just totally stumbled upon. And that's pretty much kind of how we've been um, working is kind of lurching from one of these just (laughs) amazing stories that, you know, pops out to the next and the next and the next. And it's just kind of been very kind of, I don't know what the word would be, just stumbling, nonstop stumbling. But that's how it's been and that's how it continues to be. And it's just, you know fun and exciting and also just I don't know. <laughs> it's uh it's been a trip and it continues to be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great. Uh well I wanted to get a little bit more into the history. Um, so, um, going back to sort of the introduction to the book, you write that a lot of Ashkenazi communities by the turn of the 20th century were still very reluctant to embrace modernity, right? And modern medicine was a part of that. So instead they relied a lot on traditional healers. Uh, so could you talk about the role of healers in these communities before world
1: war II? Um, well, I would say I'll let Adam pick up on this, but I'll start by saying that, um, probably in the smallest towns and you know the middle-sized towns there weren't a lot of there wasn't a lot of access to um more you know contemporary medicine and what uh there was wasn't really trusted by the people who lived in the in these places and they were more familiar with their traditional healers like the felchers and um the midwives and the obstetricians, um, because the people who came in who had been more formally educated often didn't speak the language of the people. They often refused to speak the language of the people and instead spoke things spoke the language of the dominant culture, and that put people off because they were used to having this more intimate. Um, uh, ability to speak with the people who um, they were looking to for healing and because it's an intimate um, relationship to tell somebody you know what's bothering you and you know how can it help you it's and so you know there's a lot of trust that's involved there and if the person who you're having to go to doesn't speak your language and there is somebody who does um, it's I'm guessing way more comfortable to go with the more familiar and so I that seems to be what was going on in these communities and even people from the big cities would often come back to their um, smaller towns to visit the traditional healers who uh, they they trusted with their with their health did you want to go
2: on Oh yeah, I mean, just this past week we were looking at a yes corps for our, the, our next next project, and uh, there was um, sort of a brief description of um, attitudes toward medical care in this town. I think it, I can't remember. I think it's you know, which is you know in Podolia. I think um, there had one. There no doctor. Um, there was one Felcher who was also a dentist and who had been a, a barber. Um, and if if he didn't if he didn't if he didn't help you. And he, I guess, he often didn't. You then um, went to a a, a bobe, uh, who was, you know, that which would you know means grandmother, but it could refer to a midwife. It could refer to a, um, uh, you know, a, an exorcist. Um, if, depending, you could see a you could see a a, a, um, a znachor or znachorka, which is the Slavic equivalent of an absprac or upshprakarin. Um, I don't think that particular community distinguished between you know Jewish and non-Jewish um, uh, exorcists, or you know, uh, um, or you would um, just get get what they call zogar kids or uh, to, to to pray for you beder But in a lot of towns, um, the doc, you know, if there was a trained doctor, they may have been there under duress. You know, they were Jewish because of the pale restrictions on. You know, even if you were could get yourself to, you know, to to Danzig or Berlin to study medicine formally, when you came back to Russia, you still had to live in the pale. So, you know, that was not necessarily where they wanted to be. They were charging for their services, whereas a lot of, you know, traditional healers, you know, it was sort of a point you know, that was what would you call it? Not even a point of pride. It was yeah. simply part of the culture where yeah. you don't this is it's not it's bad. Mm-hmm. It's bad to, 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 to demand any compensation for this. This is simply done. Um, and it would, it was, there was simply, depending on the town, there was an array, but you could, a typical town would have probably a felcher, um, you know, a, a, a surgeon or a paramedic. Oh, uh, there would be, um, usually one or two midwives, um, one, one Jewish, one, one, one non-Jewish. Um, there would be, uh, you know, healers who work with supernatural, um, forces typically, um, the, the ones who could uh, combat the evil eye and uh, the, um, the midwives. I already mentioned the midwives, yeah. but yeah, that's um, maybe there was a doctor. Maybe there wasn't. Sometimes some towns in Poland had a hospital that was run by the Catholic church. Um,
1: there, there were um, the Jewish hospitals or the um, right. Hekdash. The
2: Hekdash. Yeah. There were Jewish hospitals. There were Jewish community. Um, but if you look at the book, I mean, their reputation was generally, the cl- along a scale, the closer you got to Western. S- Western medicine or state institutions, the lower the level of trust. Yeah. So the further you got away from that, culminating in absolute, you know, trust and devotion for, you know, um, bobe, you know, un- uh, quote untrained midwives as opposed to um trained trained uh, uh, trained midwives.
1: Who could also be Felchers. Who could
2: also be Felchers. But yeah, I mean, it's a complex story. We really discussed it in, you know, if, if we felt like we had, we had, we offer like the most succinct <laughs> summation of a really complex history of medicine in Jewish communities in Eastern Europe. And, you know, it's like 20,000 words. So there's a lot of stuff that, <laughs> yeah, we didn't even talk about the historical figures like the, you know, the Bali Shem, oh, you right. know, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the religious healers or you want right. to you know,
1: Oh, well, yeah, the Baal were, um, known as the, um, practical Kabbalists, and they, um, this is probably the Middle Ages, um, possibly earlier, um, into, uh, after the Enlightenment period, and they, uh, healed with, um, amulets that they would compose for people, uh, um, and also herbs that um, they drew their knowledge from these remedy books that could be um, composed of information from many different sources. Um, some of them were translations of um, Western doctors medicine um, that were translated into Hebrew or Yiddish. Um, some of them were uh, drawn from um, their knowledge of local communities like Slavic medicine and even had a lot of Slavic terms in them. Um, And when they healed, they used the Hebrew or Aramaic language as opposed to the women who always spoke in Yiddish or the dialects of the people. So even though they were popular, Among the people, they weren't as popular as the women from what we read, because, again, they were speaking in the language of the Bible, you know, and not the language of the people. So um, my takeaway from um, reading all of this is that um, people always felt more comfortable with um, things that they felt at home with and could relate to and could trust just with all of themselves, you know, because the healer was speaking their language. Um,
0: So can you say more about the impact of the the opening of Russian medical schools to Jews that happened in the 1850s, especially in light of this kind of distrust uh, for the the outside world, and particularly the sort of scientific language versus the language of the people?
2: I mean, yeah, it did have an impact. I mean, but I would say... The impact was sort of, you know, you could, it's really a part of a much broader um, sort of state investment in public health. Um, you know, one of those things that you sort of pass over until you work on a book during a pandemic, you know, is you notice that, you know, there wow. were a lot of stuff happening yeah. around these cholera outbreaks in Russia in like the 1890s. They were every like three, five years, there was a cholera outbreak that sort of swept through the Pale. And that sort of led to, um, massive, uh, by our, I guess, our standards, massive in investments in like, you know, uh, country, you know, rural healthcare, we'd call it the Ziemstva. Um, and that required, um, it allowed for, um, Jews from different strata of society to enroll in professional medical education. Sometimes as medical doctors, much more often as sort of certified felchers, certified midwives, certified nurses, and because they were not on dentists, right, and because they were not, you know, intelligent, they weren't, you know, the really, you know, uh, Jews from, you know, the, the merchant class who, the ones who could afford to go off to Berlin to study medicine and didn't, and, and when they came back wanted to only practice in St. Petersburg. Um, these were going to be, uh, um, aspiring medical prof- healthcare professionals who were perfectly content to go back to to um, th- th- their towns and villages to serve the people. I mean, I-, I can't imagine we didn't look at that in any way closely, but I can't imagine there wasn't a correlation between you know uh, political viewpoint, social democracy, Bundes, et etc., and one's willingness to sort of go off, get trained, and then go back to serve the community. How it actually impacted um the overall health of the communities um we you know we 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 looked at some of the, the the larger public health literature that you know noted things like infant mortality rates in in Jewish communities were much lower than 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 in the surrounding communities and that may as well have been um you know laws around ritual cleanliness as, as anything else it's it's hard to say um, but certainly right up until the eve of the, of the, war, um, the people relied on traditional healers, um, for, for you know, for almost everything. And it, there's a real tension, you know, in a lot of the, 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 uh, literature that we reviewed, especially, oh, from, you know, sources like Evo. Um, one of the, there's a, a really amazing book, which has been translated into English called Frog Under the Tongue by Mark Tushevitsky, who's a Polish scholar. It's a fantastic book. And uh, your readers should definitely, it's published by what, University of Liverpool Press. Yeah. Fantastic book. So glad it's in English. And, um, you know, he's looked at sort of this, um, the, the sort of like quizzical disbelief, I guess, that a lot of trained doctors, especially in Poland between the wars, who were sort of b- b- bewildered by the fact that, you know, they were here where they were bringing, you know, mo- modern medical care to these communities. And yet people still preferred, um, still preferred the old ways, which, you know, to me hardly seems surprising to us, but certainly that tension existed right up until the war. And it made some of our research a little bit more challenging because um, in many cases, this, these, this ethnography is about all you have to go on. So especially at the Anski expeditions, they would, you know, they would go, you know, they would go on a great length about, you know, the, the, uh, the mystical, you know, the hocus pocus stuff, but they would, you know, they would, they would ignore the fact that they were working with, uh, informants who had actually had plant remedies that they were using as well. And then they would just say, oh, and she, she gave me some tea and I drank it and I felt better, but you know, who knows, they wouldn't tell you what was in the tea and the informants may not have told them because a lot of that was secret knowledge.
0: I mean, I think it's kind of probably an obvious comment, but as as an Ashkenazi Jew from Russia myself, um, you know, knowing the, the massive cultural capital that doctors now hold in our culture and in Jewish communities, it's kind of something humorous about looking back, thinking that it, not so long ago there was a time that there was all this distrust.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's necessarily, I mean, that I, you know, I think that, you know, but over in, during the Soviet era is when that shift took place. Um, and also mm-hmm. because, and that's one thing that we we, we we ran into, but we didn't look at. I mean, even the herbs used Ukrainian folk medicine. The though you know all those all that research was conducted by, you know, state institutes for botany, experimental medicine, pharmacology. So the and even some of the other things that we relied on is sort of comparative cross checks, things like Nossel and Nossel and Zemninsky and you know. Um, the Mueller deeds, which is a German compendium. Um, the Soviet medicine relied heavily on plant was, was, you know, on plant medicine and they were open and they openly acknowledged the debt. You know, it wasn't, you know, like mm-hmm. Western, you know, capitalist medicine where you can, you know, you, you, you occlude the fact that you're taking, you know, nature and then taking it into a lab and coming out with some intellectual property. Uh, so I, I would imagine and just you know a uh, comprehensive system of free medical care um is is going to make make people over time much more you know trusting and accepting of, of you know modern medicine but yeah again certainly <laughs> right. the um, you know the, the 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 recognition that um you know that that plants you know plants plants can do and want to heal i think is much more um uh, much more, you know, even some of the, I, I'm sort of wandering off topic, I guess, or I'm talking about things that I'm not as, not as, you know, as, uh, sharp on things like, um, you know, the, 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 the concept of like the, 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 the adaptogen, which is a very, 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 yeah. very mm-hmm. important term in modern herbal man. that comes straight from um, uh, 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 Brechtman. Brechtman. Yeah. And, and, their work on rhodiola and Siberian plants, and you know, in the in the sixties and seventies and eighties, and that's like crucial, amazingly important, revelatory work. And it came out of a tradition that was not interested in monetizing it or exploiting it, as far mm-hmm. as it. Could know. Um, and you know, it's 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 really exciting stuff. And we're sort of happy that we have a new project that's allowing us to look more deeply into that 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 body of, of work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um. So there was one other thing that you mentioned before, um, and we can sort of just touch on it because I know it's not something you went into in too much detail, um, but the role of the supernatural, um, so sort of an understanding and diagnosing and healing illness and the relationship uh, between sort of the supernatural and using prayer and things of that nature to heal illness, uh, how was that uh, intertwined with herbal medicine?
1: Um, uh, in the more modern era, the Absprachers or um would use ritual uh, to um, handle uh, cases that involve the evil eye. And the evil eye um, is a concept that probably goes back before uh, the Hebrew Bible. Um And it can manifest in um, many different ways. Um, In the pale, probably the most common um, rituals against the evil eye were done for um, children um, who uh, suffered from fear. And that could um, show up as um, anything from... um, oh, I don't know, a rash to a bedwetting. Um, And so the ritual that we came upon over and over again um, was uh, something that um, we called the wax ceremony. And um, that uh, involved um, having the patient um, sit down and a bowl of, Water, a cool water was held over their head, and um, a lump of something um, with a low melting point, like wax. Um, Um, that's probably the most popular in the pail was melted and then um, put into this water and allowed to harden Um, and that was done three times and while it was being done the person was talking about their fear and the uh, practitioner was reciting um, these incantations sometimes it was in Yiddish we found one that was in Ukrainian, that was um, spoken or whispered, I should say, by the uh, sprekerin, um, because all of these incantations were done by whispering, um, and then the wax or other substance was um, interpreted by by the healer, um, and that would tell where the fear came from and um, how to cure it. And while we're not sure exactly what herbs were used by these women um, all the time or the extent of the herbs that they used. We do know for a fact that um, certain herbs have been passed down because I spoke recently to an Upsbrecherin, a Jewish Upsbrecherin in Israel, who told me that she uh, uses garlic, rue, salt and sugar so we know of at least two herbs that were known by these women that have been passed down to this living person in israel um and uh i'm fairly certain that um for protection they also uh knew to uh, apply um saint john's mm-hmm. wort which in um yiddish was uh known as uh Shadim, which means demons, shoots, which means um, protection from. Um, so those are uh, several herbs that were aware of um, that uh, were in the repertoire of these um, these healers who uh, performed. Um, I guess in uh, contemporary language would be called exorcisms. Did you want to add?
2: Oh, I mean, one thing that was it's super interesting is just how syncretic these practices are. Um, that the, the descriptions, if you, uh, one of the books that Dietrich relied on was the word and wax,
1: the word and wax,
2: which is documents, um, the wax pouring ceremony among Ukrainian, you know, uh, Ukrainians in uh, Canadian, Ukrainian Canadians in the prairies who came from, who came from the Podolia. Podolia, the same, yeah. the same region. Um, and in many cases, the, uh, the charms are are identical. Um, Yiddish language accounts of that we find in the Yizkors, you know, basically um, refer to what they're doing as, um, you know, shibshit, which is like basically a Yiddific- Yiddishification of of, of of the verb shiptat, to whisper, Shiptuhi, they call them, but it's always like in quotes, whispers. Um, it's um, again, like Dietrich said, uh, the the charms could be. Intoned in Yiddish or in Ukrainian, and it's sort of fun to see um, the one of the Ansky ethnographers transcribing this 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 charm, you know, in 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 Yiddish, you know, Yiddish letters, and then having to sort of <laughs> run it back into, you know, in Cyrillic or to see what it looks like, so you can you can make sense of it. Um, but it was absolutely the case where I the, the two communities. Adopted a common set of practices, rituals, beliefs, and the uh, directionality, the trans, uh, you know, the transmission of knowledge. I think ran freely in both, you know, both both ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I wanted to get um, into the the bulk of the book, which, as you mentioned, is a materia medica, um, a body of collected knowledge about the therapeutic properties uh, used for healing. Uh, And there you describe 26 plants that are, quote, known by folk healers in the pale of settlement with a significant Jewish population between the two world wars. Um, And you mentioned that this is a selection and that there were more that you looked at. Um, So can you talk about how you chose those plants um, and maybe a few that you found particularly interesting?
1: Um, it was really a struggle uh, on which plants to choose because there are so many, um, Uh, And so I, in some ways, some of these are kind of randomly um, in the book because I certainly could have um, chosen a different plant. Uh, I, I would say for the most part, my criteria was that the plant be known by the communities with the highest uh, population of Ashkenazim, um, uh, before World War II. And so that probably would be the majority of the plants. Um, and then there were a few that I chose that, um, were outside of, um, that, uh, known, um, uh, demographic, uh, and those were things that were a little bit more, um, like, I like the stories about them. Um, one of those would be nutmeg and I just was just amazed at, at the story, which is kind of like incidental, um, in this book called memoirs of a grandmother by, um, the original author is, uh, Pauline Wengeroff and it's translated by, um, uh, I can't remember the, I can't remember the translator's name. Do you remember her? Um, uh, I think her last name's Magnus. Um, and in that story, um, the uh, the author remembers her husband's grandmother who had been a midwife and an apprentice in this town called Conatip And she used all kinds of herbs. And this is like unprecedented that this woman had remembered the herbs that this herbalist and midwife had used. And one of the herbs, I mean, out of the handful that are mentioned um, is nutmeg. And I was just blown away that nutmeg was known in the pale in the late 1800s. And so I did some research on how did it get there and you know, what is this all about? And so I kind of told the story of nutmeg. And what I found was this woman seemed to know that nutmeg, um, was a plant that could help in helping somebody rest and sleep. And she gave it to, uh, her um, granddaughter in law to help after the birth of the first child in that family, um, And uh, the woman was able to sleep after giving birth and, you know, convalesce successfully. And so that was really just fascinating to me that, you know, just to pick out that 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 very personal story on this plant that I just found so surprising to um, exist and be known in the pale um, at that time. So that's one story um, of one plant. Um, another plant that I chose that was outside of those, um, uh, um, reasons was, uh, raspberry because, um, it was known in the pale, um, as, uh, um, a, a syrup is what I found. And in my family, my grandparents always had it on the table, a jam of raspberry. And so it was exciting for me to um, find that raspberry syrup was a remedy, a very common remedy that syrup makers made. And it was like a medicine that was given to children and probably other people who were um, trying to uh Um, heal from a cold or the flu or what have you and um, it was just an important medicine so important that it was even faked in some towns um, uh, by uh, adding a lot of sugar and dyes to it and that was the less expensive version of it than the actual um, syrup that was made from the berries themselves So those were two plants um, that uh, kind of were more personal to me. Um, And the whole idea of that Materia Medica was, um, I, I really wanted to see how these plants became known in these small villages by these traditional healers, and so I really wanted to put them, like, in a historical and geographic kind of context and see, you know, what is, wh- how do these uses in the in the compare to um, other places in the world and at other times? And kind of what I found was. Um, a lot of this knowledge came from um, the Greeks and probably the Egyptians before them. And uh, so that was, that was really interesting. And a couple of plants were not mentioned in Dioscorides. And I, you know, still wonder if they were just a local knowledge that, you know, had just kind of been pioneered by that um, region. So there's still a lot of mysteries around the plants um, of, of that time and place.
2: And I'll just add, this is one thing that we found kind of interesting. We haven't really talked about yet. Sort of like a Sherlock Holmes dog that didn't bark. Because <laughs> when we went through, we were going through, yeah, we were going through um, herbs using Ukrainian folk medicine. And again, if you look at the title, you think, well, they're talking about you know, Ukrainian folk medicine. You know, folk medicine is practiced by Ukrainians. And nowhere in that book do they mention um, viburnum op- opulis, kalina. What's that? Gilder rose? Is that what it is in English? Gilder rose. Yeah, kalina, which is you know basically like the national flower of Ukraine. Uh, of Ukraine, um, and it's certainly known. You know, if you look at the Russian-Ukrainian um, uh, works on folk medicine, it shows up. You know, it's 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 it's. And so the fact that it didn't show up anywhere. In this book, you know, um, I, we thought was kind of interesting. I don't know if it's because they weren't asking about it or if their informants, maybe that showed that, you know, it, it's used. You know, there are plants that were definitely more used by Jewish communities than non-Jewish communities and vice versa.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I... Um, located all the towns on the map and I put together the spreadsheet that uh, identified the towns that were reported in each, I mean, the plants that were reported in each town, um, you could see um, different patterns emerging um, the towns that were located on the right side of the, of the Dnieper River um, definitely uh, were known to use different plants than The towns on the left side, uh, left bank of that river, where there were um, less frequent Jewish um, communities, and so that was kind of interesting and definitely deserves more uh, exploration and research.
0: Great. Um, So, as as we get to sort of the end of our time together, um, what do you hope will be the sort of key takeaway for readers?
1: Um. Well, that's interesting and complicated, and um, for me, as somebody of Ashkenazi descent who was baffled by this lack of knowledge, I hope that people take away um, that we also had a tradition, um, and it was very rich, and it was um, widely practiced, and it was well-regarded, And at the same time, I feel like, um, the plants, um, can't really, shouldn't really be claimed by any one, um, ethnicity or any one group of people because they exist in their own right and they belong to nobody. Um, they belong to themselves. And, um, that was, you know, that was something that came to me, um, towards the end of doing all this research that, you know, to colonize plants is just, I don't know, it just seems wrong to me, but to have a tradition, you know, that respects the plants and um, the knowledge of the people, you know, that seems important, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Mm And Adam, did you want to add
0: anything?
2: Um, yeah, one of the things that were, um, again, not only, you know, this recognition of, 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 you know, of the plants and their autonomy and their generosity, but the fact that the communities, I mean, clearly the, you know, there was so much intercommunal aid and assistance
1: yeah. It comes
2: through again and mm-hmm. again and again. I mean, so much of the received history you get is it was nothing but pogroms all the time, but it wasn't. There were communities where for years mm-hmm. everybody was, you know, there were, you know, accounts of, well, we, you know, there's, there's, there's everybody in this town, everybody went to the Polish midwife, you know, because she was the best midwife. Or everybody, you know, um, everybody went and saw the, the, the uh, you'd go 20 kilometers to go to the Tatar you know, in, in some little, little, little village out in the countryside in Lithuania. And we're looking at that, that intercommunal yeah. uh, overall culture of healing.
1: That was so exciting to see. Just really, um, just so heartening, especially, you know, in terms of thinking that people got along, you know, in the past when, you know, everything that we have read about the past has said the opposite. And it just gives, gives us both hope for, you know, the present and the future that um, you know we can we can all come together to to heal um, and to take care of each other you know and the plants can help that they have helped in the past and it seems like you know they 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 they're here to help us you know now <laughs> and into the future.
0: Absolutely, I think that that's a great note to end on, and I really do think this is such um, a wonderful service, um, not just to the Ashkenazi kind of global community and Ashkenazi history. Um, which I agree can be just so bleak. So it's great to, to read something so positive, but just to the, also the herbalist community. Um, so that is all the time we have. Um, so thank you for listening to New Books and Religion on the New Books Network. And we've been talking about Ashkenazi herbalism, rediscovering the herbal traditions of Eastern European Jews. And Ashkenazi herbalism is now available from North Atlantic Books. Adam and Dietra, thank you again for joining me for this fascinating conversation.
2: Oh, Diana, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Yes,
1: thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity.